Lord God, we do want more of you. We want to get to know you better and better. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you want to speak to us, that you want us to hear from you even this evening. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present and that you are taking the words of Scripture and that you are applying them to our lives and our church so that we can hear. So give us ears that are attentive to what you have to say and move among us that we might know that we have met with the living God. Amen. Well, as Mark mentioned at the beginning, we're back in our series in the book of Revelation this evening, and we're looking tonight at the sixth letter, letter number six, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Hopefully, when I mention the name Philadelphia, you think of the city in America rather than the soft cream cheese. But uh, the Philadelphia referred to in Revelation 3 was actually a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And the book of Revelation begins with brief messages, with letters to the seven churches in this area. They're messages from the risen Christ to his church. And as the opening vision in chapter 1 reminds us, the Lord Jesus Christ, he walks among his lampstands, among his churches, and he sees what's going on in each one. And he knows the good things and he knows the bad things. And he has a message for each of those churches uh, to be written down by his, his servant John. The unusual thing about the seven letters, though, is that they're not just a message to an individual church, but were intended to be circulated to all seven churches, and as part of the book of Revelation, become a message to the universal church down through the years, so that we too can benefit from and need to listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to the church of Jesus, to us today. I'm just going to read through the letter to begin with. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And if you remember, the basic structure of each of these letters is that they each begin with a charge to write to an angel of that specific church, maybe some sort of representative of the church. That's followed by an identification or title of Christ, normally taken from the opening vision of chapter 1, followed in most cases by some positive words acknowledging what's good about that particular church, then some words of encouragement or warning, and then finally an exhortation to listen to the message, and then a promise to those who do respond, and especially to those who overcome. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, 
Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's just have a look at that in a bit more detail. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. So that's the opening instruction. Write this message to the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia in ancient Turkey was an important city. Like many of these cities, it was built on the junction of several main trade routes. And it was, it seems, on the main postal route for letters being carried from Rome out throughout the Roman Empire. It had rich volcanic agricultural land around it and was particularly well known for its vineyards. But being in a volcanic area meant that it was susceptible to earthquakes which, as we'll see, might explain some of the imagery in the letter. The name Philadelphia, as you might know from its American counterpart, uh, means city of brotherly love. And it's thought that it got that name because of two of the founding Roman rulers of the city who were brothers. There were a number of temples in the city, probably especially for Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and fertility, and for Zeus, and for the worship of the emperor. And like many of these cities, it had a Jewish community in it. Anyway, that's where this group of Christians were. The letter, the letter continues, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So holy and true, that's used again in 6.10 of God, describing the sovereign Lord who is holy and true. And for those of you who've been around on Sunday mornings, as we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, the title, Holy One of Israel, has been repeatedly used of God. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is here being described also as the Holy One. And he's given the title, literally, the True One, not just because he speaks the truth, but because he is faithful to his word. His, his words, his promises can be trusted to be true. We're told next that he holds the key of David. The risen Christ holds the key to the royal household of David. David ruled in Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, for many years. But Christ has full authority to admit people now to the new Jerusalem the city that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus has absolute power to control entrance to the heavenly city, the heavenly kingdom of God. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. A sign of his authority. He can make a way, he can open the door for people to enter the kingdom of God. It's uh, quite likely that what's happened in Philadelphia is that the Jewish synagogue rulers have, have excluded the Christians from the synagogue. Christianity, as you probably know, developed out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, and the early Christians were Jewish, and it was natural for them 
as Christians who want to continue to be part of the Jewish religion. They claim the heritage of the Old Testament history of the people of Israel. But the Jewish leaders thought of them as a sect, as a, as a blasphemous religion, a religion that worshipped three gods and, and celebrated the shameful death of, of their leader who had been killed on a Roman cross. I don't know about you, but have you ever been shut out of somewhere that you wanted to get into? You know, maybe you walked out of your house and it was one of those self-locking doors that closed behind you and suddenly you realized you hadn't got your keys. Or, you know, perhaps you were trying to get back into a concert venue or a music venue and you'd, you'd left your ticket inside and the bouncers at the gate wouldn't let you back in. The door was, was firmly closed. Similarly, it seems that the Jews have closed the door. You know, they've, they've maybe locked the door of the synagogue and, and are keeping the Christians out. And they're probably also stirring up trouble for the Christians. You know, Christianity was tolerated in the Roman Empire while it was thought to be a branch of Judaism uh, since the Jewish religion was, was tolerated. But once it began to be clear what Christians actually believed in the fact that they worshipped Jesus as Lord rather than worship Caesar as Lord, then they rapidly came under persecution and discrimination. And the Jews, I suppose, in cities of the Roman Empire, you know, they they seem to be quite eager to try and stir up as much trouble as possible for the Christians. Hence the importance of this message from the risen Christ. He is the one who holds the keys. He is the one who ultimately opens and shuts doors. Christ, the holy and true one, holds the key of David. He alone controls the door to the heavenly city. Verse 8, some words of commendation. Christ Jesus sees what they're doing well. He sees what they're doing well. Verse 8, I know your deeds See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my words and have not denied my name. I know your deeds. You know, the risen Christ is present with his church. He sees what's going on. He knows how these Christians have been serving him. The letters to the churches in Ephesus and Thyatira contain the same idea. Jesus knows And again, the same is true today. Jesus sees what's going on in our church. He he knows what's going on in your life and my life and and how we're serving him and what it is that's making that so difficult. I find that encouraging as well as somewhat challenging. The verse continues. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Some commentators think that that might be an open door for effective ministry. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase in that way in 1 and 2 Corinthians and Colossians. The idea being that the church in in Philadelphia, they're they're entering a period of gospel growth. People are going to listen to the Christian message. And I think there are times when God does that. He he opens a door for ministry in the local schools or, or he grants favor with the council, allowing us to open a food bank warehouse or, or in some mission context. He opens the door into people's hearts in a special way and there's a great turning to the Lord. It's encouraging to think of God being able to open door for ministry. 
But I'm not sure that that particular interpretation of verse 8 fits with the rest of this letter. More likely, I think, given the previous verse, Jesus is here again telling the struggling church that he has opened the way for them into God's kingdom. The door to the synagogue might be shut, but the door into his kingdom is wide open and no one can shut that door. They're a church who have been faithful to Christ, who've not disowned his name despite the persecution and hardship they've endured. Jesus is holding the door open for them. They have little strength, verse 8. Maybe in terms of numbers or resources or emotional energy. But, you know, that's not the limiting factor when God is at work. And despite the opposition, they've kept his word. They've not denied his name. Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. They have not disowned the name of Jesus. They've not disowned his name. They've not denied him. An encouraging example for us today, perhaps. For you and me today. As we experience persecution or hostility, that we as Christians today might honor the name of Jesus and not be ashamed to own his name, even when it singles us out for ridicule or accusation of being intolerant, or wherever else it is. Jesus honors those who honor him. These letters to the seven churches usually continue at this point with some words of rebuke. But this letter and the one to Smyrna are unusual in that there are no words of rebuke. You know, usually the pattern is, you're doing these things well, but I have this against you. But not so with this church, just words of commendation for them. They have kept Jesus' word, they've not denied his name. Which leads then to the promise of reward. And in this case, it's quite an extensive part of the letter. And I'd like to suggest falls into three main sections. Verse 9. First of all, the promise of vindication. Reward number one, vindication. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Again, a wee bit of Old Testament background. In the book of Isaiah and other Old Testament books, God's people Israel are given the promise that their Gentile oppressors will come and bow before them and acknowledge the God of Israel. The irony here is that that is turned on its head now. It's those who identify themselves as Jews and think of themselves as special to God who will come and fall down at the feet of the Christians and acknowledge that God loves the Christian community. As one commentator writes, what the Jews fondly expected from the Gentiles, they themselves will be forced to render to the Christians. They will play the role of the heathen and acknowledge that the church is the true Israel of God. Christ's people will eventually be vindicated. 
I quite like it when I'm proved to be right. I'm sure you do as well. And it's hard not to say, I told you so. But I don't think here that this is actually so much about the Philippian Christians feeling, uh, Philadelphian Christians feeling superior as rather being grateful that they've proved to be in the right. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so much is it the case that the Jewish synagogue rulers are in the wrong that the risen Lord identifies them as the synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews because they have the law and circumcision, but they are only Jews in outward appearance, as the Apostle Paul would say. They are liars, verse 9, because their relationship and understanding of God does not match their cultural and religious confession. Their slander and persecution of Christians means that they are aligning themselves with the purposes of Satan, God's enemy. As Jesus once said of other Jewish leaders, they show by their actions that the evil one is their father. And yet, one day, they will be forced to acknowledge that it's the Christians who are loved by Christ. Verse 9. The Christians who are the true people of God. Maybe in the sense of coming to faith themselves or, or in the sense of, of ultimately they, of, the, of them bowing their knee on judgment day when it's too late. But the Christians in Philadelphia will ultimately be vindicated, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, all Christians, including us too, will be vindicated as having been right we will be seen to be those who are loved by God. Reward number two, preservation. Preservation. The Christians in Philadelphia will be preserved, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The book of Revelation goes on, particularly in chapter 6 onwards, to describe the coming hour or or period of trial. Things for Christ's church are going to get worse before they get better. God's people are going to continue to suffer, but God's judgment is already being being poured out on the godless, anti-God state and on those who are hostile towards God and his people. The inhabitants of the earth are going to be tested by him, verse 10, to see if they will respond in repentance. It could be that the phrase, keep you, is a promise that the Christians in Philadelphia will be delivered from the time of trial. They will be kept from undergoing difficult events that everyone else is going to experience. More likely, rather, it's a promise that Christ will keep them through this coming trial. Christ will be faithful to them as they have been faithful to him and he will protect them spiritually so that they will not be overcome by the forces of evil in the world. They will be preserved. Number three, reward number three, salvation. Eternal salvation, verse 11. I am coming soon, says Jesus. 
Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. These are lovely words. They're, they're helpful words. Even for us today, if, if we're Christians. Three different pictures of our eternal salvation. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Even though it feels like a long time, Jesus can describe this period of time before his second coming as a short one. The book of Revelation begins with a description of all these events as happening soon. It's not going to be too long until I return. So hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Persevere to the end. Complete the race. The victor's crown was given to athletes who won the events in the, in the Greek games that, that, that were common in, in Philadelphia. But like a gold medal today, the sign of a winner, one who's run the race of life and, and entered into their eternal reward. The victory crown given to the Christian who, who makes it to the end. Hold on, keep going until I come to take you home. Picture number two, the pillar. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. These Christians in Philadelphia, they might have been put out of the Jewish synagogue, but they will never be put out of the temple of God. They will be like pillars, solid, secure, stable, permanent. Perhaps in contrast to the buildings and the temples that collapsed in one of the many earthquakes in Philadelphia. As Christians, they, we, won't leave God's temple. We won't leave it in the way that people fled the city of Philadelphia in AD 17 on the occasion of one of the greatest earthquakes. Towards the end of the book of Revelation, we're told about the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down from heaven and God making his dwelling among the people on the renewed earth. Revelation 21, we're told that there will be no need for a special temple in the new holy city, for the Lord God Almighty will, and the Lamb are its temple. So the image for the Christian in Philadelphia is not that of you know, being a pillar in the, in the new physical temple, but that of being a pillar in God's presence. They will be stationed in God's presence forever. They will never leave God's presence, never, ever, ever, ever. And finally, picture number three, they will be marked with a new name. In fact, in fact, they'll be marked with three new names. If you think back for a moment to the start of the school year, I know it's a long time ago now, but, or if you're no longer at school, think back to when you were at school. And just before term started, can you remember writing your name on lots of your school things or you know, your parents writing your name on your jacket or your coat or or your pencil case. And then on the first day of school, you wrote your name in your jotter and, and, and so on. It, it was a statement of ownership. These things belong to me. Well, verse 12, Jesus says to these Christians in Philadelphia that to the one who is victorious, he will write on them the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Three different names. The name of God. They belong to God. They are the property of God the Father. The name of the city of my God. So in other words, they've got the right to be there. You know, like a, like a passport or like a security pass that you might have around your neck. Uh, you know, to get into a venue. They belong to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. They are residents of God's city. They are God's people. You hold citizenship in that eternal place. And number three, the new name of Jesus. Now you might think, is Jesus going to get a new name? No, he's not going to get a new name in the sense of being called something else, but in the sense that A name in Jewish thought was connected to the character and attributes of a person. So that when we get to know Jesus in heaven, we will fully know him in a way that we do not yet know him. He will have a new name in that he will be fully revealed in all his glory for who he is. And his glorious name will be written on us. It's not good news. We belong to Jesus. We belong to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We're his possession. And that's the message to these struggling, weak, persecuted Christians in Philadelphia. They belong to Christ. He has not forgotten them. He will not abandon them. So hold on. Continue to persevere even in these difficult days. So what then about us? What about you and me today? Well, verse 13, we're told, whoever has ears, which is probably you and me, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This message to this church in Philadelphia is at the same time a message to all the churches, to our church, to you and me if we're Christians today. Jesus is still the one who opens the door to the kingdom of God. He alone holds the key. And that door being opened depends only on him. And so if you've yet to take up the opportunity of entering into God's presence through Christ, then turn to him today. Become a Christian. Also, the Lord Jesus is still the one who knows what we are going through. He sees it when we honor his name or own his name as Christ followers. Even when it costs us something. It's not easy being a Christian. It's it's not likely to get any easier in the days that lie ahead. But he will keep us and preserve us during the time of trial if we look to him. He will strengthen us even when we have little strength of our own. And if we hold on, we'll receive the victor's crown. He will establish us in his presence like a pillar. And he will write on us three new names indicating that we belong to God. We belong as citizens of the new city of God's people. And we belong to the Lord Jesus in all his glorious greatness.
That's a message that's worth hearing and a message that's worth taking to heart. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.